Hello, and welcome back to Schizotopia. As always, I'm your host, Maxwell Cody, and joining me from the uh, fringes of the greater Eurasian Empire, Mr. Brian Gigantino. BG, how are you? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing well tonight. It is currently 1 a.m. on March 1st, 2000. Or no, I'm sorry. It's actually March 2nd now here in Tbilisi. And I am uh, I'm here in Tbilisi. Yeah, that's, that's what we're doing. I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Well, it's, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you're dating the episode because the last episode we did on this subject is already dated. Yeah, actually, um, you know, so we're back here to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. And, um, you know, the thing is, is that these events are, are rapidly unfolding. Um, things are going very fast. And, you know, there's a, there's a number of very great, intelligent people giving great interviews about what's going on, some I can recommend. But the problem is, is that any expertise one has is quickly outdated by the course of events. Every single day, something more crazy happens. In fact, just before I started this interview with you, I just looked at what Erdogan said today. Uh, I don't know. Did you see this, Maxi? No, I haven't. I haven't heard any any of uh, no, like, I heard because, any, uh, Turkish murmurings about this war. No. Well, there's a lot to say. Um, and the first thing I have a couple of things I want to start with. The first thing I want to say is that Erdogan is upset because because of this war, there's a move in the European Union to speed up the ascension or the um, yeah, the ascension process um, of Ukraine, which right. none of us believed would ever be a member of the European Union before. But because of the war, um, actually, some of the liberal goals of a certain segment of the Ukrainian elite are probably going to be realized because of the war. In, in a weird, twisted way, of course, Russia is going to actually help Ukraine join the European Union probably join NATO and is going to, you know, mm-hmm. make some of those dreams come true. Uh, and so Turkey is very upset about this because they've been trying to become part of NATO for years. I mean, sorry, excuse me. They're already in NATO trying to become part of the European Union for years. Same with Serbia and a few other countries who are in these long, long waiting lists, but they might make an exception to the European Union. So one of the things you got to understand is that the Ukrainian elites are trying to take advantage of the war to actualize some of their domestic policy that they've been pushing, right, in terms mm-hmm. of Europeanization, which makes sense because of war is um, an opportunity, of course. It's, it's not like, I'm not saying it's like a nefarious conspiratorial thing, a conspiratorial thing. I just think like, it's like, it's pushing it in that direction. Um, I also want to tell your listeners that uh, I was wrong. I was fucking wrong. Uh, yes, you did say that we're not going to see tanks in uh, well, Kiev. I was, I was, I was actually at the majority position, right? There was yeah. a lot of people who argued this, and there was a minority who said that they were going to actually invade. And I, 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 I mean, to, to be you, fair, I didn't think Putin was going to go ham either. But I right, also, I, I also felt strongly that why, why do this buildup if, if, if you weren't at least willing to, um, willing to go all the way. Well, I just want to, I would like to tell, you know, this reminded me is that I, I didn't listen to my intuition. And my intuition is, is of course, you've got to like not listen to too much ideological stuff. And you've got to look at the people who are analyzing like military movements, um, the people who are watching the Russian military and the people who are watching the sort of like economic stuff, you know, the material things and the people, there's a couple of experts who were, who were doing great work, but these excellent Twitter threads, Michael Kaufman and Robert Lee, I think is his name. Um, both of them, Max, I'll give you their Twitter handles. You can give to your, to your viewers, but they're two experts on the Russian military in both are Americans. One is a PhD student at the university at King's college in London, but he's like a, he's very published and stuff. Very, very good. He's, he was in the U S uh, Marines. I believe he had been stationed and helped train Georgian 
military, but he's fucking amazing. Very, very good analyst of the Russian military. And there's a guy, Robert, um, Mike, excuse me, Michael Kaufman. And I can't remember where he's a professor or if he works at a think tank in DC, but he's also an expert in the Russian military. And both of them who are the best in terms of Russian military movements and positioning, both of them said, there is no way Putin is not invading. And the reason is, is and again, they didn't attribute like any politics to it. It was just like based purely on military movement. There's no way that a buildup that big was not gonna result in a, a, a use of the force. It doesn't even make sense, not even from a threat perspective. And I was skeptical that they were, didn't really, I was, I was critiquing them. Yeah. I was like, these, they don't actually know. I, and I can understand. Being made. Yeah. yeah. And, and I can understand because maybe we're still thinking about this conflict in terms of the cold war where you have brinkmanship, where you have madman theory, where you, where you, you, you do these grand gestures to um, scare the other side or keep the other side on their toes, even though you're not ever really going to go through with it. Right. Um, well, actually, actually, Max, honestly, to be honest with you, I was, I can tell, I don't know. I don't know what you were thinking. I can tell you what I was thinking. What I was thinking was that, no, 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 this is not the cold war. This is a fucking post cold war conflict where the calculations that Putin was making, I was under, or I should say Putin and his inner circle were making militarily with Ukraine was prolong the use of extreme military force to try to get concessions from the West based on their core political demands. Because, and we'll talk more about this, but I was under the impression that it would not have been in the interest uh, for what Putin's political goals were and are to initiate force like that. Right. So, but build up to it. But what I, okay. So what I was thinking is, or what I'm saying is, is that you can have this sort of residual cold war thinking, even if you don't mean to. Right. And I think that that's going on a lot in the world today, um, where you, you interpret these events, uh, as if they were happening in the cold war, even if you don't mean to. And from that perspective, you know, like massive military buildups and, you know, little sort of, you know, edging your opponent, so to speak, that, that made a lot of sense in the cold war. But the other thing that I was have been thinking, and I, I talked about it a little bit last time, was that maybe you know if you're if you're Putin, if you're the um, a Russian high command, you see what just happened in Afghanistan. You know, you see cracks in the American empire, and I believe I said something to the effect of why not go all the way? If there was ever a time to go all the way, maybe it's now. What do you mean all the way? Take Ukraine entirely. I mean, try try to annex Ukraine, regime change. You know, there's no why be coy anymore. It, you know, if there's cracks in the West, if there's cracks in um, the American Empire, if there's cracks in NATO, maybe this is the time to uh, do what you what you really want, which is regime change in uh, Kiev. I mean, from the perspective of Russia, I'm speaking from the perspective. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 you know, I think one of the things that's important for us to all do is, and what I think a lot of people in the West don't want to do. Is actually try to understand what is the logic that not just the you know the Russian position. Why would they? Because I think one of the problems is that that is being obfuscated in Western media discourse. This is the first thing I want to. This is the first thing I want to ask you about. Putin's evil. Evil. He's a madman. I want to just. I want to just start by saying, and I think I, I made this abundantly clear the last time we talked. I do not think Putin is crazy, and I still don't think he's crazy. I'm getting into this argument with people regularly because there's a movement, basically the construction of the Ukrainian nation through resistance to Russia, which is what's happening now. It's okay. becoming a, a you know, moral, um, ethical um, requirement to have solidarity with this 
basically national resistance to the Russian invasion, mm -hmm. which again, I am against the invasion. I've said this pub, I say this all the time. I don't think the invasion was a positive or good thing. What I think is important for people to keep in mind and to think about though, is why did the invasion happen? And I think that very often nobody wants to take seriously what the Russian reason for doing so is, and they just want to say that Putin is crazy. So, right, and this is the first thing I want to ask you: is Putin's Putin's declaration of war uh, speech uh, when he talks about you know the, the the goal of the war is the denazification of Ukraine? When I ask you, what, you know, what do you think was true and false about that speech? This speech is going to re it requires. I mean, we got to like, we got to really dissect it. It was fucking very interesting. Okay. And I think we got to talk about it in a couple of ways. The first thing is that the Russian state, and especially if we just talk about Putin, is willing to instrumentalize different ideological ideas, different ideologies, different ideological orientations um, in order to create a political framework for any action that the Russian state is going to undertake. He's not consistent, right? He placates the right. He placates the left. He placates Soviet nostalgia. He placates the Moscow liberals. He placates fascists. It's because he himself is not, doesn't have a convicted ideology, you know? Um, and I think that, the, that this is something people got to get in their head that Putin doesn't come to these um, political decisions with a serious ideology that is consistent. In that speech... What he was doing was framing some resentments that the Russian state has and that Russian foreign policymakers have, and that I think anybody, not even Putin, not just Putin, would have, right, uh, about the post-Cold War arrangement. Some of the stuff he said in the speech was totally correct, but in general, what it was was not crazy, like some people were saying. It was a it was a pretty traditional far right wing anti-communist Russian nationalist speech, an anti-communist Russian nationalist speech. One of, and I would say based on my own research, the most interesting aspect of the speech was the stuff about Russian nationality policy. Or I'm sorry, excuse me, let me rephrase that. The most interesting part of the speech was about Soviet nationality policy. One of the things he mentioned multiple times was that Lenin created Ukraine, and that if you and he had this very uh, kind of um, smarmy way of saying it, but you know, Ukrainians want decommunization, we'll show them decommunization. And what he meant by that was that they were going to undermine the, the particular borders that that Ukraine had today, right? And 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 sort of rework the borders because the borders as they exist. Or a Bolshevik creation, and that's not entirely incorrect. But the but the but the but the 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 problem with it is is that he's saying that to deny the legitimacy of contemporary Ukrainian statehood and sovereignty, which is partially correct and partially incorrect, and that's what makes it so hard for us to have a rational conversation about it. He's right that the Bolsheviks had a nationality policy that had concessions that were given that. You know, provided concessions to nationalists when they were building the Soviet Union, right? The Soviet Union was not a Russian empire. In my opinion, it was a 
what the Bolsheviks basically set out to create, which was a builder of nations. The Bolsheviks created modern Ukraine. So part of what he's saying is true. And then over time, decisions were made based on, you know, the development of a Soviet system where national interests were supported by the Soviet center, which was not Russia, but was Soviet, which only existed based on the existence of these national, um, you know, uh, republics, which when the Soviet Union collapsed, created contradictory border situations that have never been resolved. So Putin saying things like, well, you know, the Donbass was given to this, you know, or, or you know, for example, um, Crimea was given to Ukraine by Khrushchev, which is true in 1956, I believe, 56, 58, 54, 54, sorry. Um, <laughs> 50s, that's true. Was in the 50s. Yeah, that was true. And, but what I'm saying, but, but you see that Putin is um, playing to a kind of mix of full Russian right-wing nationalist uh, ideology in saying that the Bolshevik nationality policy was wrong because it undermined Russian interest, which is true. See, this is the thing that I want everybody, my whole life's work is to point out the fact that the Soviet Union and the Russian Federation are not the same, right? They are different entities. And, And Putin actually explains it so beautifully where he's like, they undermined Russian interests, which is true. Soviet Union undermined the interests of Russia as a nation. And um, that's the resentment that he's trying to play it on. But at the same time, he's also saying this thing about denazification, which is a Soviet trope. Because in the USSR, uh, Ukrainian nationalists waged a guerrilla struggle through the 50s against the Soviet Union. Right. And, and especially in Western Ukraine, I think it was most almost entirely in Western Ukraine, which was not even brought into the USSR until after World War II, during World War II, right? This was a part of Poland that was then annexed because it was Ukrainian speaking area. Well, this is, and then this is the next thing I want to talk about is that how, how sincere, how sincere is Putin when he talks about denazification? How much do, does, how much do you think people in Russia actually believe that this is about denazification? And we can get into Nazis in Ukraine, which is a real thing, but how, how seriously do you think that that, that that trope is actually taken? What do you mean? I'm, I'm maybe like explain it a little bit more. So this yeah. is this is what I I've been struggling with, where you kind of have this pin the tail on the Nazi uh, politics that we we have today, where it's like Nazi just means anyone who is outside of what is acceptable, right? Or Nazis, since Nazi is the worst thing you can be, um, that's the thing you try to uh, pin on any of your your opponents, and it's something that we've been doing in the West for a while. And there is something a little bit funny about Putin doing it and saying that, you know, I'm, I'm launching a war of denazification um, against Ukraine uh, because who could argue with that, right? The, not, Nazi is the worst thing you can be. So who could argue with that? And the thing is, it's like you have, obviously, you have um, Azov Battalion, you have a, a, a strong neo-Nazi movement in the Ukraine. That is true. Um, but you also have, you know, for example, I was reading this article recently about um, German neo-Nazis who were trained in Russia. Um, and it's almost like, you know, it, it is both the U.S. and Russia um, train and endorse far-right militias. And it's almost like you, you, you do that specifically so that there is a fascist threat for you to fight with later, right? No. First of all, Max, yeah, totally 
all great points you just brought up, right? Totally. Um, first and foremost, there are a lot of Nazis in Russia and there are a lot of Nazis in Ukraine. <laughs> and um, I think that that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is, I think it's a great fucking point um, about the, you know, this contradictory postmodern figure that is Putin, where on one hand, he's the bulwark in the eyes of the far right against Western liberalism. Right. Do you remember when actually uh, the, when the alt-right emerged in the lead up to the Trump election victory, there was a, there was a segment of the far right in the United States, of course. Um, and I think the most extreme version was Matthew Heimbach with Richard Spencer a little bit behind him, who were far right fascists who openly celebrated Putin saying yeah. that, well, and for different reasons, okay. Matthew yeah. Heimbach did it for ideological reasons because of Orthodox Christianity. And he was trying to blend Orthodox Christianity um, with U.S. white nationalism in a very bizarre way, which maybe you've talked about on your podcast before. Well, he ended up, it's funny, he ended up getting kicked out of the Orthodox yeah. Church. Yeah, yeah. And of, yeah, he had a whole, and then he was like, got caught fucking his boss's wife in the trailer, like, you know, the whole yeah, some real, some, yeah, some real yeah, he's, he's an no, and he's not, and actually, he's not, not that bright of a guy, you know, but he did, but he was trying to build this uniquely he, he represents a tendency yeah but was and, he, and i could talk about him but but he was what i always thought was interesting about him was he was like really obsessed with corindrew in romania he was very interested in orthodox fascism you know and he mm -hmm. really wanted to bring in eastern orthodoxy into the america white national question even though america is not an or it's the least orthodox country there is right i mean it's like it was very weird it was a very interesting approach Richard Spencer's ex-girlfriend or ex-wife was a translator for Dugan, which I don't know if you know, she was a Russian fascist. So he had this actually direct connection to the Russian far right, weirdly enough. Most people don't know this. Um, and uh, I bring this up because I'm trying to say that there was an, a segment of the Western far right that always loved Putin because he signaled this, you know, conservative civilizational orientation or something like that you know yeah just a, just a general anti-liberalism right a general anti-liberalism we're, we're really, not being integrated into the eu we're not we, we don't want to be part of whatever it is whatever right. post-historical thing you guys think you're doing and what of course is always the funniest thing was that some of these countries that got integrated into the eu you know we're also opposed to western liberalism that's the thing we also have to always remember yeah Poland, Bulgaria, Romania. I mean, these are not the their population constituents of population and political elites who were always opposed to Western liberalism as well, um, and they were integrated to the EU anyways. And that's another conversation, you know. But I guess this but, is the the larger point that I wanted to get at, though, which is that is it entirely cynical? And I know maybe this is a question that's just like what impossible to answer. What, what is what entirely cynical? Is this sort of anti-Nazi stance? Is it entirely cynical? Because I suspect that it is. Uh, or, or do you think, is there still some sentiment in Putin or even just in Russia in general, the sentiment of we really are anti-fascist? No, no. So uh, this is what I was going to get at, okay? There's th it, it, we have to break it down a little bit. 
Putin is trying to use rhetorically this language of anti-fascism for a few reasons. The historical memory of the victory of Russia over the Nazis in World War II and the fact of the uh, popularity of anti-fascism as an idea in the West and the fact that Ukrainian Nazis are a big problem and many in the West have pointed this out, right? So rhetorically, this all is useful. The other thing is that he talks, so for your listeners, Putin often talks about Banderites, right? These, and so during what your listeners should know, and I don't want to give a full speech about Ukrainian nationalism, but very simply, there was a movement called the um, Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, okay? which was affiliated with an organization called the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, which waged a guerrilla struggle for Ukrainian independence in the west of Ukraine. One, and they split a bunch of times, but one of their main leaders was a guy named Stepan Bandera. And he became the, and he was a Nazi collaborator, okay? Like that's just known, but he became a symbol of right-wing Ukrainian nationalism, which believed that the Soviet Union was Judeo-Bolshevik, Eastern, Mongoloid, all this racist shit, right? Um, And he basically came to represent the far right-wing anti-Russian aspect of Ukrainian nationalism. So in the kind of popular consciousness in the Soviet Union, Bandera became this you know, embodiment of far-right, anti-Soviet, pro-Nazi nationalism. And one of, the th- one of the things that happened, right, was that the, after Maidan in 2014, what had prior to that been a fairly marginal far-right movement became, was basically able to become the vanguard of this uprising in 2014, of course, not everybody was in support of it, but they rehabilitated the memory, the anti-Soviet memory, uh, hostile to Russia memory of these nationalists, which started guiding the national idea of Ukraine. And so the Russian state was able to take advantage of this reality in, in Ukraine, which was that they were using, you know, far-right, anti-Soviet, totally racist, fascist um, iconography, history of Ukrainian nationalism, which is in principle, not just hostile to Russia, but hostile to the left, hostile to Poland. I mean, totally xenophobic and crazy. And this came to represent the main ideology of the basically it was a, no, I shouldn't say the main ideology. It became a functional ideology of Ukrainian nationalism, which was a problem because there was then a tension within this post-Maidan Ukrainian state-building project, which wanted to both join the EU and be pro-West and be pro-liberal and at the same time had this hyper-fascistic element, you know, Uh, Nazi battalions were integrated into the armed forces. And this was a great PR for for Russia 
because then they could use this to, to delegitimize uh, the, the, the Ukrainian liberal state building project. But at the same time, it, I think that this fascistic nationalism was normalized, legitimized, and have rehabilitated in a way that did imbue certain elements of the Ukrainian nation building project with kind of far right elements. And it became a really, uh, it became a problem. The other thing is, is that Ukraine is so uh, fractured by region, language, income, memory, and it's a very big state. And so that is a reality where this kind of certain far-right nationalism of Western Ukraine and this memory of Bandera was never able to fully consider. And the Russian state was able to kind of take advantage of this, right? The uh, last thing I'll say, the far-right nationalism of Western Ukraine was trying to become the framework for a nation of Ukraine after the 2014 uprising, rising, because as you know, nations are built through movements, through, you know, active historical development, right? They're not long-standing things that just exist forever. You have to build them. And after this, and usually movements, wars, uprisings, these are the things that build nations. So after Maidan, there was a there was an attempt to take, kind of take these ideas of Western Ukraine and make them the framework for a you know Ukrainian nation, which was a already by definition exclusionary Ukrainian nationalism that could never include the Far East, the South, other areas, and this is something Russia took advantage of. I want to talk to you about NATO's eastward expansion. Uh, because agreements were made, as I understand it, agreements were made with Russia to not expand NATO past Germany, if I remember correctly. That, you know, once Germany was united, okay, the new united Germany will, reunited Germany will be a part of NATO, but n- not one step um, east of that. And then, but of course, you know, Baltic states, Poland, they're all brought into NATO. Um, and a lot of this conflict is about whether or not Ukraine would be uh, would would join not just the EU but NATO as well, and that being a big red line um, for Putin. But not just Putin, but really any leader of Russia did not want to see NATO um, it, it expanded to their doorstep. And I just can't help but think, you know, if, if it were the other way around and the U.S. broke up, I mean, can you imagine, you know, t- Texas being added to uh, the Warsaw Pact? That's just not something that I don't. I think any American leader would accept. If you could just break that down a little bit for us. Well, I'm sitting here with a copy, first of all, uh, of a book that just came out. And this is, this is the book, but uh, first of all, I just want, you know, I always suggest to your audience books and articles and thinkers and ideas that people should reference. There's a book that came out just this year that everybody should probably look at if they're interested in this question about NATO expansion. And Max, can you see this? This is called Not One Inch. America, Russia, and the Making of the Post-Cold War Stalemate by M.E. Sarot. I didn't okay? mean to say the title. I, that is entirely coincidental because yeah, I have yeah. not seen well, this because before. This is a famous quote, of course, not one inch forward by the James Beard or whatever. So, um, but what this book, she's a, I believe, a professor at, um, um, God, where does she work? 
she's a professor at Johns Hopkins, I believe. Very, very, very great scholar on the Cold War. And actually just so happens that, you know, her life, she had been working on this for a while and it just came out this year, uh, very timely. And this is a, a very close examination of the diplomatic relations between Russia and NATO and the United States, um, but particularly between Russia and the United States, if I remember correctly, about whether or not NATO is going to expand or not. Okay. And she's, you know, her and I would probably disagree on some things, but her analysis, and, and again, I haven't read the, I haven't read the whole book yet, is basically that, you know, there were promises made and misunderstandings were hap happened, but basically both sides made promises they didn't keep, but that America and the NATO had this program called the Partnership for Peace, which was a sort of in-between that was not formally NATO and wasn't neutral, but was a mechanism that Russia was very happy with because it sort of created states that were not in NATO, but were neutral, but kind of protected and didn't have this aggressive posture of NATO. You know what I mean? And her argument is that the sort of collapse of that was uh, a huge problem. Anyway, I suggest everybody read this book. There's another, there's a couple. And so, and she, you know, and again, she's, she's somebody who's very neutral, very like uh, scientific. Um, uh, after that, uh, another thing I will say was that this NATO expansion question, okay? The reality is that the Russian state views NATO expansion as a threat to it because this is a military alliance, right? Where this is a military alliance that Russia will never be a part of. In fact, by definition, they can't be a part of it. And there was actually a time, maybe you know or don't know, where when Gorbachev was in power, he said, maybe the Soviet Union could be part of NATO, you know? Um, and there was discussion, right, under Yeltsin about Russian become, Russia becoming part of NATO. Was that ever seriously considered in the West? I mean, was that ever I, really a possibility? Probably not. But the point is, is that it was even uttered. Yeah. Um, that, and what it represents is less that it was a possibility, but more the idea that, you know, there was a rebranding of what NATO means when the Soviet Union collapsed and it wasn't really sure what it means because what do you do with an anti-Soviet, aggressive anti-Soviet alliance when the Soviet Union is not there anymore? And of course, there was a lot of people that, who had vested interest in maintaining it. And I am of the position that this, this Western military posture really helped give rise to Putin and Putin is more like a product of the West for this reason. Well, and this is what I, this, this is what I've been struggling with is that really, if there's no Warsaw Pact anymore and there's no Soviet Union anymore, why should there be a NATO? Because it just seems like having NATO remain after the end of the Cold War and having it expand just inevitably sets up this, um, this path to what we're in now, which is a, a, whatever you want to call it, a, a new Cold War, a white scare or whatever. Um, and then interestingly enough, Putin is now going to have some kind of anti-fascist conference where he's inviting a bunch of foreign countries to come and meet with him, almost like he's getting ready to create a new Warsaw Pact. It, it just seems like bo both sides have to give up their this idea of an extended military pact in order to not have perpetual Cold War. 
Well, I'm, you know, I'll be the first to say I'm against NATO. I think it shouldn't exist. I think it's, 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 it doesn't serve any purpose. It, it exists as a military alliance, which kind of makes Russia much more aggressive. It's either like you get rid of NATO. In my opinion, of course, some people disagree with this, right? But in my position, okay, the way I see it is that, is that there's this idea, right, that like NATO exists to protect places against Russian aggression. I don't think that that's how it works. It works from an assumption that there's an inherently expansionist character of Russia. If we don't have this, Russia will, by virtue of being Russia, expand and try to take over everything. It just, well, it's in it, but it's self-fulfilling. It seems very self-fulfilling. Right. And my, right. This is, this is what happens is that of course, then you take this aggressive posture and then, and then the Russian elites feel threatened. Right. In all kinds of ways and they because for obvious reasons and then you know it ends up reproducing nato's existence or whatever you know um as we see with this war in ukraine right ukraine was split on nato finland was never going to join nato after this war you know ukraine is going to try to join nato and finland said they're going to fucking you know try to join it well, right. We're past the point that that's the thing though, is that, and I, and I can kind of see why people think Putin is crazy because I guess it's back to the junkyard empire thing. Everything in my view, in my view, my view of Russia is everything they do is out of desperation because basically they're a country that has no future. Like just like I said in the last episode, by every, like by every way, by every metric by which you can measure a country, nothing is going well for Russia. And so this, you know, this war against Ukraine, it's, it sets them up to have to deal with all the things supposedly they don't want because now there's no way that NATO's going away. There's no way NATO's not expanding. Now you even have like Switzerland siding with uh, the EU against Russia. It's they, they've opened up the precise can of worms supposedly they didn't want to, but maybe, but then that makes me think that's because Putin felt like this is it. This is his only chance. This is kind of what I was talking about last time. Why not go for it? If there was ever a time where you felt like there was a crack in the American empire with Biden in the White House, with, you know, this defeat in Afghanistan, with Brexit, you know, with just, you know, even, you know, murmurings of Frexit and other, you know, just problems with the EU in general. Maybe he he feels like this is the one, the, the last shot Russia has for, for glory, so to speak. Well, you also missed... Um... I mean, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. <laughs> no, no, no. You're, 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 you're the expert here. You're here to well, catch my missus. Well, I'm not. Whatever. I don't know who I am, but <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm an expert. Oh, much like Russia, you don't know who you are anymore. Just fine. I've got this. Uh, yeah, no, no desire to be. I've got this humility disease. No, but I mean, like, I, I one thing I would like to add to what you said. Okay, is that Russia was half strategic in trying to get its position to sort of orient itself in like a very, you know, from a strategic position, right? They also really had been working on developing these gas pipeline projects with Europe. Um, they have trade with European partners that override, for example, you know, their relations with France and Germany override the political anxieties of Poland and Romania, you know, Poland, for example, and the Baltic states. And uh, there's, I mean, when Germany canceled the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, for example, I was shocked. Um, I didn't think they were going to do that. That was quite shocking to me because Germany has always had, uh, very, and, and France too, hence the reason Macron is trying to be the mediator, right? You know, they've always had these much more rational positions on Russia 
than those EU states that uh, came from the post-communist world that were ruled by far-right elites who, you know, sort of like want to totally reject the communist past or all this stuff and bring that into the, the national narratives of the, of the countries. I say this because I think that there was some level in the Russian government, the Russian state, where they understood the West was less united than they thought they had been up until then. And but what, of course, again, this is the this is the dialectical element of it was that then the Russian invasion makes the West double down on a vision of itself against Russia. Well, and that's the thing what we were talking about last time, where now you have like woke NATO propaganda. Um, and I was it's I was talking worse. it's getting worse and it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Well, yeah, well, I was talking about how desperate it is and how kind of pathetic it was. But then in a way this conflict is sort of like a gift to this sort of woke neoliberalism because it gives them, it gives them another reason for being when they were kind of running out, right? This becomes, this becomes a thing that they can, they can uh, stake everything on because it's a way in which you can sort of be more right-wing than the right-wingers, right? Cause you can say like, we're pro America, we're pro American empire, even if they don't put it that way, but they say, you know, we're, we're pro uh, strong Ukrainian men fighting in the street, this kind of stuff, all the stuff we would normally associate with kind of like right-wing chauvinism. You're not going to be able to get these right-wing people on board for this war with Russia, right? This is the irony. You're not going to be able to get the the classic like right-wing American uh, conservative chauvinist to get on board with this. A lot of them are even sympathetic with Russia, right? So then you have these like weird blue checkmark liberals and they're the ones who are like, we need to fight the new Cold War. We need to uh, support the Ukrainians. And I, last time we talked, I mean, and it's funny how, how much things develop. Last time we talked, I was like, this is desperate and it's not going to work. And now I'm thinking like, maybe it kind of will. Maybe you will get, this will give the EU a reason for being, this will give them a reason to shake their finger at the UK and say, you should be, you know, you should be here with the, with the rest of civilization, the uh, rest of Western civilization, helping fight against Russian aggression. Um, you should be uh, you know, we need, we need a woke empire basically. Um, and this is it. This is the thing that they, they needed. Russia is the enemy that if they didn't have, they would have probably ceased to exist. Right. Well, first, I first want to say that I don't think that actually this is going to result in finger wagging at the UK. And the reason is, is because I think that the, the Boris Johnson, if you notice, He's trying to position himself as being the most anti-Russian, uh, you know, harsh force there is. Um, they even, you, you know, like before the invasion happened, um, he was like Poland, the UK, and Ukraine have a new security alliance, which isn't real, but it was symbolic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, like, there's this, basically there was this. I mean, this is a separate topic, but there was an idea that because of Brexit you were going to have this liberal EU and the anti-liberal non-EU um, and that the UK would sort of assume a role in the world of this sort of anti-liberal, you know, orientation along with Russia and other countries, maybe if Trump had been in power as sort of non-liberal US or whatever. But I think that that's maybe a little bit of a um, jumping the gun because I think that Actually, in the case of the UK, they're going to just uh, show that they're more European, quote unquote, than the EU. You know, like they're like actually they're 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 leaving of the EU doesn't actually counter some of these sort of more fundamental questions. And okay. the only and the only reason I say that 
okay, the only reason I say that is because of this way that Boris Johnson has really tried to sort of position himself vis-a-vis Russia in this conflict, which is very aggressive. Even more still, aggressive than even the EU, I would say. Even still, it can be sort of a back way. It can be kind of kind of a backdoor way of undoing Brexit, where it's sort of like, where if, if Boris Johnson feels the need to compensate and be like, oh yeah, we left the EU, but we're still as anti-Russia as ever. <laughs> that's still that's sort of a that's still a way of creating a kind of European um, EU hegemony, uh, where they there may have been fear that they had lost it right because of Brexit or something like that. And um, I, I I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if like, you know, this kind of new new Cold War that's now inevitable, there is going to be a, a kind of new Cold War. It's just to what extent. Right. I don't think it's obviously I don't think it's going to be like the old Cold War, but it, it will be it will be the thing. It, it's either going to be the new frontier for the liberals or it's going to kind of be their graveyard. And I actually haven't made up my mind about which one it's going to be yet. But this kind of brings me into what you said I shouldn't talk about, or we shouldn't talk about, but I still feel the need to talk about it is that Dugan is kind of making the rounds again um, in, in the in the uh, infosphere, whatever you want to call it on the internet again, because as we've talked about before, and we had a whole Nosball episode about this, which I, I reposted recently, Dugan becomes a lot like Dugan becomes the explanatory model for a lot of people for what Russia is doing. And that's because, you know, if you look at Dugan's book, uh, Foundations of Geopolitics, a lot of what Russia has done since 1997, when it was published, kind of lines up with with the things that that book talks about as being, um, you know, what should be Russia's new geopolitical goals, and so on and so forth. However, that book, as far as I understand, was made you know, in conjunction with the Russian state, in conjunction with the Russian military. And so is it that we should look at Dugan as being, you know, is he really the new Rasputin, as everybody likes to call him? Or is he just kind of a mouthpiece for for the Russian establishment and what they're going to do anyway? And he just kind of provides a, a an ideological framework after the fact. Well, the reason I told you that I didn't want to talk about Dugan was because of the fact that, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to put an end to the Dugan question right now. Please, please. I'm going to bury the Dugan question right now, okay? It's fucking done, Maxi. It's fucking done, okay? Here's the issue. Okay. Here's the issue. Dugan is a, like, half-rate wannabe philosopher whose book in the 90s was picked up by a Russian general and gave some ideological philosophical explanation of the red the quote-unquote red brown alliance which is not a great description of uh, of it but in russia there was opposition to liberalization that was assumed by sort of soviet nostalgia fascists and some of the left some of the right blah blah together what we call red brown alliance dugan created a basically nonsensical philosophy that some of the military guys got interested in. And then because of this, Dugan had, and Dugan was also like a, you know, an editor of a newspaper. He was a thinker of the new right uh, uh, in Russia in the nineties. And then became, and he was a flaw and became philosophy professor. Okay. Um, There was a movement in the West to see Dugan as an explanation why Russia or how a post-Soviet Russia thinks of itself because of the way that some people in the elite, right? And there was this, and there was this narrative, there was this idea that Dugan was a, um, was a, um, 
advisor to Putin and he, that he was like one of Putin's close advisors, which, and, you know, then he orchestrated the, or, you know, the, the annexation of Crimea and all this stuff. And that this is being ideologically driven because in the West, it would be much easier to see Russia as being driven by a particular ideology, this new, um, you know, reconstruction of a, of a right-wing um, Slavic Orthodox um, ideology that, put, that, that Dugan, uh, you know, writes about. But I think that this has been well, overplayed. Real quick, it's, it's, it... kind of a, it's kind of a wet dream for like the sort of like boomer conservative where it's, it's like an actual, it, it's, it's an actual like Nazi communism hybrid Nazball, right, uh, thing. And that's the new threat. And that's what's guiding all of Russia's decisions. Exactly. And I think that, exactly. And I think that that was in the West became a much bigger deal than it was in Russia. And so I had a lot of friends who were just like, why do people in the West give so much fucks about Dugan? He's a kind of washed up bullshitter, but he became this figure because again, in the, so Dugan is more a product of like the Western inability to make sense of Russia than a actual influence in the state. You see what right. I'm saying? Because he put out, oh, he, we're fucking done with Dugan. <laughs> I'm not exactly done because he did put out a statement where he basically said that Russia's war in Ukraine, um, he kind of echoed Putin a little bit, but he, he, he takes it a lot uh, further, of course, that th this is like the opening act in a greater struggle against um, the, 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 the neoliberal hegemonic order, um, that this is just the, the, the beginning of the, the destruction of this, um, what he calls the Atlanticist, right, the, the neoliberal Western um, world. And that's how he wanted to frame this conflict. And I just, I don't know how many people are actually going to take that seriously um, outside of a handful of uh, Nazball wingnuts on the internet. Um, I guess I mean to say, like, you don't think he has any real influence or resonance in the Russian oligarchy or even in no, I don't. Russian no, no, people? No, no. Okay. No, no, I think it's, I think it's a waste of time to talk about. It. No, I, th I think it's, 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 it's not. No, I think that Putin, what I will tell you is that Putin will speak to far-right ideology like i said before right. russian nationalism anti-communism but do i think that dugan is like some kind of influential ideological figure in the kremlin no because i don't think that the calculations being made by putin and those in the kremlin are ideological i think it's a different uh calculations that are being made they're concerned about maintaining the state they're concerned about maintaining russia's existence they're concerned about a world that they, they, and that's all filtered through a particular worldview that they see, right? Which is about maintaining resources, maintaining their geopolitical position, um, and basically an inherent hostility with the West, which again is complicated because um, the West does not make this. The West, as such, cannot include Russia in its um, organization. I guess you could say. Well, well because I, I was just going over the this book, Foundations of Geopolitics, came out nineteen ninety seven, as I mentioned. And but 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 again, but again, but again, the, the, the Dugan stuff. I'm telling you, man, <laughs> it's not that useful for making sense of Russia, because I don't think that that is guiding the decision-making because it's not an ideological conviction. This is like 
a poetic metaphor for the fascist right to make sense of Russia's position in the world. Okay, but but, but and obviously what you're saying is the Russian oligarchy is doing real politic. Um, they are not devout Duganists or something. That this isn't D- Dugan never became. Duganism has not supplanted Marxist-Leninism, or is it, it is not what what to the Soviet Union Marxist-Leninism was. Uh, Duganism is not to the Russian Federation. Not even not even close. Okay, because because if you go to Russia and you go to Moscow, you know this is like a bustling cosmopolitan metropolis of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Gay bars and you know vegan stores and I mean it's just like it doesn't even make sense. Right. To talk right. About, right? There is a kind of revanchist element of the Russian state vis-a-vis certain questions, but like the do some some desire okay. sort of superimpose the 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 kind of ramble the deranged ramblings of Dugan onto the decision making of the Russian elites. Okay, but maybe we're getting at I think it obfuscates our ability to actually understand why they're making certain decisions. Okay. But then maybe we are getting at something real here because this is kind of why I'm still not getting off it. Because Foundations of geopolitics does line up with a lot of what Russia has done or is attempting to do. Um, you know, the reannexation of the Ukraine, um, even like it talks about like an alliance with India, you know, Modi uh, abstained from the, the recent uh, or, you know, Modi's India abstained from the recent uh, UN vote about the uh, Russia-Ukraine war. So a lot of this stuff seems to line up with what Russia has been pursuing. And if you see, or Russia is not a mouthpiece for Dugan as much as Dugan is a mouthpiece for Russia, maybe there is still a, a, a window into what, how the Russian oligarchy thinks uh, through Dugan because they are the ones who put out his book. So maybe there is a little bit of a kernel of truth there. You're fucking, you're fucking, you're fucking like digging for straws, my man. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I just no, wanted no, to. And, and, no, no, but here's why. There's, I, I, it's not because I'm like pissed. I'm just saying like, I, I want to tell you why I think this is not a good way to understand them is that, is that I don't think that the Russian elites are driven by ideology. Mm-hmm. What they're driven by is a very different calculation. The Soviet system collapsed. And then it produced this post-Soviet world, okay, which some people want to believe doesn't exist, but I'm very much a partisan of the idea that these, you know, this post-Soviet arrangement, it still exists, okay? Okay. In Russia, they're they they like they're like they like lost the Soviet arrangement. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so they are str- like, and they were. They lost this position and then had to rebuild something else, but maintain the worldview that doesn't actually make sense with the goals and ambitions of the USSR, but they were trained within that to make sense of the world. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So it sort of shapes how they like view things. And like one of those would be like this geopolitical conflict over camps, which is very true on one level. Like, so, and, and it's weird because like, actually the Russian elite can understand things that are very insightful that the US elites would never admit are true, mm-hmm. but they don't have like an ideological camp to sort of underwrite their ambitions, right? And so like, for example, the Russian elite are correct that there is a power struggle over the destiny of Ukraine. But you notice that in the West, they talk about it in terms of like, the natural right of the Ukrainian people to have their own 
um, national civilizational orientation. And the way that the Russian elites understand this would be that they don't actually have that sovereignty and that this is a power struggle between Russian influence and Western influence. Right. Okay. So the only reason why I'm digging, uh, digging for straws, pulling at straws with Dugan is because it's, he, he, he comes up so much, you know, in this discussion um, and he, he constantly makes the rounds and I've literally seen like, you know, like, Dugan Twitter threads explaining why, you know, Dugan is behind all of this or his ideology is behind all of this. Right. And so I feel like it's something we do have to um, address, but I would actually say it kind of goes with my junkyard empire thesis of Russia, which is like they're a junkyard empire. So they, they, you got to get a junkyard philosopher to kind of be there who kind of takes a bunch of old um, discredited ideologies from the 20th century and mashes them together in a way that just kind of, you know, more or less kind of goes along with what the oligarchs want anyway. Um, and I guess this is even this kind of ties back in with what we were talking about with this kind of pin the tail on the Nazi stuff where it's com- the anti-fascism is completely cynical um, because they're not pro or anti-fascist. They're, they're pro or anti-fascist in as much as it helps their immediate interests. Right. So I guess I guess with Duganism or, you know, foundations of geopolitics, it, it's not much different than, um, you know, Putin talking about denazification. It's a little bit Soviet. It's a little bit Russian empire. Um, it's a little bit just what, what, what's go, what's getting us through uh, tomorrow kind of ideology. Well, look, we don't actually know 100 percent what the goals of the uh, Russian invasion are. Well, this we, is... we, we kind of know. We kind of know. Um, but but. The re- but, but here's what I will tell you. It seems that the goal is to make sure that there's not a nationalist government that is pro more pro West than pro Russia. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I think and that's is- where we get the that's where we get the denazification rhetoric. It's that the the Ukrainian. Again, this is like kind of complicated territory, right? But it's like the 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 Ukrainian post-Maidan government and post-Maidan nationalism is totally willing to um, flirt with uh, an idea that Russian and Ukrainian nations should be in hostility to each other. And the Russian state, that is like the fundamental existential red line for Russian political life. This idea that Ukraine is not something that has to do with Russia. You see what I mean? It's so existentially threatening. I don't know what an, I don't know what a corollary would be in the US. It would be like in the US, it might be like, I don't know. It's like, can you imagine if there was a situation where like Florida and Texas and California all somehow started to imagine themselves not being American. I mean, it's a little different, right? Because in the United States has a different history, but it's like, it's like, it's like in the Russian elite ways of imagining what Russia is, it's just like incomprehensible to imagine a Ukraine that is, you know, not with Russia Mm -hmm. where you've got cities like Kiev. Well, the way I've been thinking about uh, it is that I kind of think as Ukraine is kind of being like uh, the Russian version of Texas where Texas no, is no, 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 you shouldn't, no, no, no. And the reason I, no, no, it's a little bit different because, because Texas, listen, in the United States, there was, I mean, it's actually worse in terms of like, it's more, it's, I would actually say that it's closer to Russia than Texas is the United States. Okay. Because 
Yeah, you know, because in like in like with, with Texas, there was a war fought over it and it was annexed from Mexico in 1848. I think that this uh, dynamic is actually a little bit more distant than the dynamic between Russia and Ukraine. Kiev is like a centerpiece of, of Russian civilization. And that's one of the, the troubles is that in, the, in this, in this um, post-Cold War era of nation states, it's difficult to understand how that can logically make sense given the post-Soviet arrangement. I want to talk about how I've seen this whole long list of articles kind of trying to pathologize Putin and talk about Putin. You know, he's miscalculated. He's overplayed his hand. It's all going to blow up in his face. Um, as I've said before, if we see this war as sort of an act of desperation or, or, or a war of opportunity, if Putin feels like this is his last chance to uh, make some kind of stand against the West, um, then it, would, it wouldn't really be a miscalculation as much as just a big gamble. But then I've also, um, I've also heard it argued that Russia isn't going in full force, that Russia is actually trying to take Ukraine in one piece. They, they don't want to kill a bunch of civilians. They don't want to wipe out the Ukrainian army because that's just going to make people hate them even more. And that they're actually trying to care as carefully as possible annex uh, the Ukraine. I think that's right. I think that that is, uh, it, it seems very clear that that's what their, their interest is, is that they want to politically and militarily neutralize Ukraine and uh, want to do so with as minimal civilian casualties as possible. But the problem is, is that the um, Russian military has a lot of infrastructural problems in, uh, in terms of command and in terms of uh, hardware. And uh, so they're having a hard time like executing that goal easily, you know? Mm. Um, I don't, I, I can answer it simply is that I don't think that Putin is irrational. I think that this was the product of a long-standing tension. People have been saying that this war was going to happen for years on the right and the left. Actually, that's one of the interesting things is that like, you know, as your listeners may know, or I know, it's like, you know, you know, it's like, I come from the left, right? Like I'm, I am from the tradition of the left, like uh, broadly speaking, right. I say in that I have like influences from various ideologies, but like I'm from the left, you know, uh, Marxist, I consider myself a Marxist. And, um, and, and actually the people who have been saying that this war was going to happen has been everywhere from John Mersheimer, uh, was more of a realist uh, kind of pro-America uh, professor at the University of Chicago, who is a, you know, the realist school, All the, and Noam Chomsky, you know, like both basically making uh, in, in various times, you know, in various interviews, uh, assertions about, or making, you know, statements about mm -hmm. the fact that if the United States takes on a uh, role, you know, if it continues to push the idea that there should be a military alliance in Europe that is includes the West and does not include Russia, NATO, for example, expands, that, that this is going to be a red line for Russia and that eventually it's going to cause war. Uh, you know, George Kanan, people who were like James Baker, other people who were close to the elites in the United States who were even anti-Soviet themselves knew that this was going to happen. Right. And so I take it as my responsibility coming from the United States to, to point out the fact that the West had really aggravated this, you know, and really, really brought this to be. We knew people in the West knew that this was a possibility that the, that the Ru no Russian president 
was ever going to be okay with an expanding NATO that they were not part of, right? That there was never going to be an okay that there was going to be a military alliance they were not part of, mm. right? And I think it's really obscene that this has been forgotten, that that the West actually it's not being memory hold. It's definitely being memory hold. Yeah, it's do, being memory hold, man. Do yeah. you see do you see a, a situation where this goes kind of full blowback for Russia? Um, a scenario in which Putin is deposed, there's a military coup against him, um, you know, or, or, or Putin's Putin's Russia collapses more or less. The the anti-war protests get big enough to to pose a um, a problem for the Kremlin. Anything like that. So I'll tell you this, like from my own perspective, right? Like I stand in solidarity with the anti-war movement in Russia. Um, I have a lot of friends who are involved in this movement, um, and for me, the most important thing is the movement in Russia. Um, I just reread an article by Lenin today, <laughs> who in 1915 wrote this. Well, you, this you're article. talking about Vladimir Lenin? Yeah. Just making sure, just making sure. I wrote this article, I read this article by Lenin where today, you know, the reason I reread it is because he's got this nice article where he talks about how in World War One, you know, we have to demand the defeat of our own governments. Mm-hmm that this is our, this is our, this is our, you know, this is what we have to do. Right. It's up to us to sort of point out the problems of our own regimes. So we can never like, you know, celebrate our own governments, like in war, mm-hmm. war opens up the possibility of crisis. And if we're able to actually struggle against our own, our own governments, bring them into crisis in order to, Bring the contradiction, you know, as the as the weather underground used to say, bring the bring the war home. You know, I mean, this is a great slogan, and it's because it's a great slogan because it was like the idea is like we're against the war, we're against the and, and again, like I don't think Russia's an imperialist, but it's like the Russian Russian society being it, when Russia. So look, I don't think Russia's an imperialist, but when Russian society is like our country's an imperialist and we need to bring it down, that's like a revolutionary slogan, you know. And it's a revolutionary slogan and they open up possibility of um, something else. Now, the biggest problem is, is that, is there something else waiting in Russia? It's better than Putin. That's going to actually make the country better. I don't think so. Right. That's my biggest fear. That's my biggest fear. But I do think this opens up a possibility for the Russian left and for the Russian, um, those who are against the war to kind of try and use this to articulate something else for Russia's future. And that to me is the most exciting. I have, I have solidarity with these people because, you know, these are my friends. These are my, you know, I almost call them family at this point. People are like, you know, comrades and friends in, in, in Russia who are fighting against uh, the Putin regime. And the thing is, is that is that it might not look perfect the way they fight or what they articulate, but there's there's doors that are being opened and I, and I want to support them trying to open them, you know? If Russia does take... Kiev and is able to overthrow Zelensky's government. If Russia successfully takes over Ukraine, are, are we going to see what another little mini Iron Curtain uh, fall over Eastern Europe, something like that? I just don't see like even like in, in the best case scenario for Russia, in my opinion, would be they successfully annex Ukraine, they set up a a, a friendly government uh, in Kiev. Um, it just seems like Europe is going to respond by hardening right by trying to set up some kind of some kind of new some kind of new iron curtain against the the russian federation or can they not do that because of energy reasons yeah no that's a good question um so 
I have this thought that we're going to see a troubles type situation. Troubles like Ireland troubles. Yeah. Okay. So just an extended gorilla. And the reason I say that is not, is actually not because I think the majority, so it's complicated, right? I actually don't know that the majority of people in Ukraine would oppose Russian rule. And the reason is, is not necessarily ideological. It's got to do more with like their practical just day-to-day life like like right. normal class people probably are not going to be um hyper opposed to whether or not the government empowers russia or ukraine but there there in ukraine there's enough people who really are opposed to russian power in the in the region and and and, and when you when you have a military uh, occupation right it radicalizes people right so I think that the that the sort of like if you saw what we saw in Maidan, it'll be that, but more armed and more ferocious. And I don't, and, and so I don't actually think that the Russian a Russian occupation regime is a viable option because I think that what I just told you, the Russian state probably understands. Hmm. Right. I really believe that. And, and and so what I think that they want is a regime that is Ukrainian, but just sympathetic to Russia that wants to integrate or deal with Russia in a different way. And I think they're going to go to great lengths to achieve that because they understand they will not achieve that uh, any other way. Mm -hmm. And so they're desperate. And, um, you know, the West caused this and it's like, we can go into all the details why this got to this point, but like, you know, I I think that, that they really that's what they want. Well, I mean, you, you made some predictions last time. I, I'm, I'm giving you a, a, a shot at redemption because I'm curious about what you think uh, is going to happen in the near future. No, fuck, bro. Why are you going to ask me this question? <laughs> yeah. All right, Brian, shot at redemption. You didn't think that this war was going to happen, but what do you think is going to happen in the future? No, you can't fucking corner me like this. <laughs> no, I'm just playing with you. Sometimes, I mean, you, you've brought a lot of info, but now it's time for the entertainment part of infotainment. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm not the best at predictions. You know, I'm better at like giving historical background, explaining like why I think things are happening right now. I'm not the best at prediction. Okay. So I'll give you that. Like, as you guys, as you and your listener, listeners understand, like I, I was on the team that was wrong. We thought that the war was not going to happen. And actually, I'd like to give you another funny insight after I tell you my prediction. But my prediction is that there's three or four different paths that this could go down. And right. And and one of them is like the most, I'll give you the most um, bleak one. Okay. Okay. Black pill. Number one. Yeah. Let's start negative and then we'll get positive. Okay. Because I was just with a friend tonight who gave me like a great positive uh, analysis and I'll give you a negative one. So the negative one is that, is what I think is going to happen. The EU, NATO, and individual EU and NATO member states and non-EU NATO member states in Europe are going to all militarize very, very harshly. And they're going to buy weapons and they're going to kind of like start to militarize and fortify their countries. Like finally get that EU army they've been talking about for a long time. Correct. Yeah, EU army, NATO, and individual member states sort of arming themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, that's going to make Russia more anxious. And it's going to create like a sort of constant, not Cold War, but um, post-Cold War standoff. 
Yeah. Okay. That's going to become institutionalized until there's a military, um, and like a, a military um, resolution to the question. Hmm. It's going to basically like make it like Russia is going to be a pariah, a pariah state, isolated. Russian citizens are going to have a really hard time. And we're going to have to deal with like that dynamic for the foreseeable future. Okay. That's my first negative. Now, a variation of that is that what's going to happen to Ukraine? Ukraine might get partitioned. Okay. This is kind of what I think. There might be a partition of Ukraine. And what does that mean? Well, a part, you know, there's been various partition um, sort of agreements for states in the past, but it won't they be like- They don't go high. very well either, yeah. They never do, right? Because they're usually like power sharing agreements between various factions. But like, we might get a situation where the uh, there's a partition of Ukraine where Western Ukraine, you know, is more with the West and the EU, and then we might get a Russian section of Ukraine that is more aligned with Moscow. And there is a it wouldn't be like North and South Korea, right? It wouldn't be like a DMZ, but you'll get some version of that in Europe. It'd be probably a little more porous. But you'll you'll mm-hmm. you'll have like a version of that, you know. Okay. That's kind of my most negative outlook. Okay. The positive outlook is that maybe you'll get a situation where I don't think that Putin being overthrown is necessarily going to be a good thing, actually. So I, I don't want to actually like you know celebrate some like Western overthrow of Putin because mm-hmm. I don't think it's a good thing. But you could get a situation where maybe a friend of mine brought this brought this up tonight. And I thought this was kind of interesting. It was like maybe the most positive outcome could be. Uh, an idea where, um, you know, maybe uh, after this war, you know, Russia loses, there's a some kind of palace coup, you know, Putin gets overthrown and there's a more sort of like, you know, reproach the foreign policy in the side of Russia. They try to basically integrate themselves with the West. And then, you know, you get a situation where there's like a new Russia and a new, and then West understands that it can't like step on Russia's toes. And they are able to basically like create a new European security framework after the war that's the that's the white pill here that's the most that's the best case scenario best case scenario okay all right brian thank you so much uh for coming back you don't think that's the, wait, wait 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 you don't think that's the best case scenario i'm saying that yeah that one's still a little bit of a bummer the idea is that no well, i mean do you want to know my best case scenario yes please that was not my best case scenario that was like the the kind of liberal best case scenario my best case scenario is that there's actually like a that this turns into a revolutionary movement in russia and they're able to sort of create a new, you know, get a new regime in power. You, an actual new Soviet Union, I think, is what you really mean. Correct. <laughs> Any other final questions, Maxi? No, I think we covered everything, man. Thank you so much. Um, once again, anything you want to plug, Brian, including yourself? Um, yeah, just check out Reimagining Soviet Georgia uh, podcast. And, um, you know, uh, please, if you're interested in any questions, you can email me, brian.com. G-I-G-A-N, no, brian.gigantino, B-R-Y-N dot G-I-G-A-N-T-I-N-O at gmail.com. You can also check out our podcast, which is Reimagining Soviet Georgia. It's about the history of Georgia in the Soviet period, but also the relationship between the Soviet past and post-Soviet memory, the post-Soviet politics in the region um, and the meaning of the Soviet past in contemporary uh, Georgian politics, but in also the post-Soviet world in general. And um, be on the lookout. Got some articles coming next month or two. All right, Brian. Thank you so much. Yep.